So beginning at Colossians 2.11, Paul says, In him, in Christ, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So, let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or feast day or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. We ask, O Lord, now that you would give us insight to your word and that the meditations of my mouth and our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. Help us to apply what we do learn tonight. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, this past week, actually the past two weeks, I've been in the pursuit of understanding more clearly and fully the biblical significance of the Sabbath. Last time we were together, we talked about the fourth commandment. We've been talking about the Ten Commandments on Sunday nights when we do meet on Sunday nights. And last time we looked at the fourth commandment, which is to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, we talked about the fact that in God's word, the fourth commandment is still intact. We still are obligated as God's people. In fact, creation is obligated to keep the Sabbath day to this very day. It's a creation ordinance given in the first two chapters of the Bible. And God, in giving the commandments in Exodus 20, uh, lists himself as the example, the model for us keeping the Lord's day. For in six days the Lord created the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh he rested from his labors. And therefore, following his example, we have a pattern for the work week. Now, if you're paying attention, you will note that we celebrate the Lord's Day and the Sabbath on the first day of the week, not the seventh. So we talked about how at the coming of Christ, there was this change in Christ Jesus at the time of his resurrection. He met after the resurrection on his resurrection day on the first day of the week with his people. And the apostles continued that in the book of Acts. And so we see there's a shift in the Sabbath from the seventh day of the week to the first. And uh, then we talked a little bit about the blessings of keeping the Lord's Day in Isaiah 58 and so forth. God makes these promises. If we do this, if we call it a delight and cease from doing our own thing on the Lord's Day, He will bless us. And so if we do it by faith, He will bless us. And then we ended that sermon last time by talking briefly, uh, just mentioning the significance, the theological and biblical significance of the Christian Sabbath. And uh, so we continue that tonight because I just scratched the surface. And um, just to be honest with you, we're only going to scratch the surface tonight. It's like Henry Krabendam talked about a certain type of preaching that we ought to avoid. It's kind of like circling an airplane around the runway and never touching down. Uh, we, we hope to touch down. Hopefully I'll present to you some ideas and concepts that you can further flesh out later. They would be the great 
it would be good topics for a Bible study, actually. Um, when we talk about the significance of these things, the Lord's Day, the, the Sabbath itself. So I want to begin by just kind of thinking about the Old Testament Sabbath as it was presented and kept in the Old Testament by God's Old Testament people, the Jewish people. Again, it was based on God's pattern, uh, his work of creation, and then ceasing from that creation. By the way, I think it's in John's Gospel, Jesus says, my father has been working until now, until that day he continues to work. So the rest that is spoken of there in Genesis is a certain type of rest. He, he does work, but it's refreshment. God even says elsewhere in the scripture, he was refreshed. And so God gave us that pattern, but also there is this rhythm of working in the Old Testament, six days resting on the seventh. On the seventh, assembling morning and evening as God's people, uh, worshiping in the tabernacle or at the, the temple, whichever it was. And um, there was just that pattern. Work six, rest one. Work six, rest one. Work six. And so as I thought about that, I wondered if, if in their minds there was ever this kind of this ecclesiastical or rather Ecclesiastes type of monotony uh, in the minds of God's people. Why do I say that? Well, you don't have to turn there, but remember the preacher in Ecclesiastes, he says, vanity of vanities in the first chapter, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? One generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. And he goes on. He's, he's asking, is there any point to all of this? We work, we work, we work, and then we acquire things and we pass it down to the next generation. What is the point? Is there significance to that? And I, I wonder if God's people, as they sought to keep the Lord's day, they didn't always, but as they did that, did they wonder, well, what is the point of all of this? And when you think about the shift, I alluded to that last time, in the day. In the Old Testament, they worked six days. They rested the seventh. So they worked looking forward to that day of rest. This side of the cross, we rest and we work out of that rest. And so it just raises the question, is there any significance to this day of rest? Remember in Deuteronomy 5, where God gives the Ten Commandments for the second time? He gives the fourth. And there's an additional re um, reason as to why he does that. In the first giving of the law, in Exodus 20, again, it's based on creation. God's working, God's resting. But in Deuteronomy 5, there's another additional reason. God says, for you were a slave in Egypt when I brought you out. And so the additional reason is God's salvation, God's redemption. So we'll come back to this, I hope. I'll mention it now. There's work and there's redemption going on when it comes to the Lord's Day. <clears throat> Think as well about the consequences of violating the Lord's day. You know, the Bible says the wages of sin is death, right? So when we turn to Numbers, I think it's chapter 15, yeah, 15, verse 35, and we see there's that guy who's picking up sticks on the Sabbath, and God's people, they pull him in, and they're like, hey, Lord, we found this guy violating the Sabbath. What do we do? And God says, kill him, stone him. 
And they did. Well, oh, that is so severe. Well, guess what? The wages of sin is death. So shouldn't we be a little surprised that any of us live? Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God is gracious. He is long-suffering. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we see that. Now, some sins are more heinous than others. Some sins are worse than other sins. The smallest sin, you know, a little white lie, will send you to hell. If you're not covered in the blood of Jesus, if you're not forgiven, if you're not a Christian. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But the point is, even though one small sin is enough to send a person to hell, there are some sins more heinous than others. And keeping the Lord's Day evidently is high on the priority list for the Lord, that we do that. But why? Why is that? And also think about God's people when they went into exile. There are at least two great sins. I don't mean that in a good way, but there are two significant sins as to why they went into exile. One was idolatry, and the other was breaking his Sabbaths. In Ezekiel 20, God says that they great his people, they greatly defiled and profaned his Sabbaths, and they went after their idols. And those two kind of go together sometimes, don't they? Sometimes our idols keep us from observing the Lord's Day. And uh, so I think about that. The severity and the consequences of, of breaking the Sabbath. The fact that God would send his people into captivity for 70 years because they broke the Sabbath and because of their idolatry. Now, interestingly enough, when his people came out of captivity, they learned the lesson. Uh, they may not have kept these things with their hearts, but they kept the Lord's Day and they didn't commit idolatry like they did in the past. And you see that when Jesus comes on the scene, even uh, in the Gospels. So you think about all of these things, they should force us to think about, well, what is the significance about the Sabbath, the day of rest? And uh, let me just say that if you, if you understand and believe what we talk about tonight, I think, I believe, that it will transform the way you view what is now the Lord's Day Sunday. You know, some people, it's kind of like, take it or leave it. Uh, but if, if we see these things, I, I think we would have a greater appreciation for it. Now, you're here tonight, and as they say, I'm preaching to the choir. I know. And I'm not trying to cause division. Some people can't make it back or whatever. But my point is, I, I know that you appreciate the Lord's Day. And even so, you could probably tell me why it is you appreciate it. Well, I'm going to give you some specific reasons, hopefully, tonight from, from the Word. Okay, so let's turn, well, we're already there, to Colossians chapter 2. Let's talk now about the Old Testament Sabbaths, plural, which were a shadow of things to come. In Colossians, Paul is dealing with a heresy that crept into the church at Colossae. It was a hybrid. It was a mixture, a smashing of several different uh, heresies, paganism, Early form of Gnosticism, matter is evil, spirit is good, and all of that. Early form of that. And also kind of mixed with Judaism, which said that you had to observe the Old Testament ceremonial laws in order to be a Christian. You couldn't be a Christian 
unless you were circumcised. So circumcision, in their mind, was still intact. You had to have Christ plus circumcision, Christ plus works. That was going on. So Paul labors, he shows how that is not the case, that the ceremonial law has been fulfilled. In fact, it's been fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you look at the the words there in verse 16, he says, let no one judge you in food or in drink. That sounds familiar. We've been in Romans 14 and 15. Or regarding a festival. Now, you might have a footnote next to that word in your Bible, or your Bible may say feast days, because that's what it's talking about in the Greek. Let no one judge you in food or drink, or regarding a feast day, or a new moon, or Sabbaths. And the word uh, Sabbath there is sabbaton. Um, So again, he's dealing with this heresy. There were those who said you had to keep these things in order to be a Christian. And uh, in the context before, in verses 11 through 15, I mean, Paul just destroys that uh, by saying that you were actually, as a Christian, you were circumcised when you underwent what baptism signifies. We would have to unpack that. That's a whole other sermon. But Paul is basically saying there, couple of things at least. Number one, that baptism is the fulfillment of circumcision. He equates the two. He tells the Christian, you were actually circumcised when you were baptized. So he's showing that circumcision in the Old Testament was a type. Now, does he mean spiritual baptism? Probably. Regeneration and all of that. The cutting away of the flesh. A circumcised heart like Deuteronomy 7 talks about. But the point is, eventually, in that passage before, he says all of these things. Were fulfilled in Christ. The end of verse 14, he says. All of these things which were contrary to us, the law of God, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And so Christ has fulfilled the ceremonial law. Christ has paid for our sins. It's all by grace. And his conclusion is, therefore, let no one judge you in these things. Verse 16. And so, in verse 17, he says these things, those things mentioned in verse 16, are a shadow of things to come. So when you see a shadow outside, you know that the sun is rising. Or the sun is out. The shadow is an indication that the sun is there. And so Paul is saying that these things in the Old Testament were a shadow. They pointed to a fulfillment of what they signified. The sun. And of course, the sun, Jesus, is the fulfillment of all of these things. He says, Christ verse 17, is the substance of these things. He is the soma, the body, the fulfillment of them. So when Paul mentions these things in verse 16, the the food, the drink, the feast days, the new moons or seasons, these feast days, does that ring a bell at all? Is anything in the Old Testament? It should. Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 23. 
Genesis to Exodus, Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 23. Now I want to talk about those Sabbath shadows and their substance. In the Old Testament, there was more than one type of Sabbath. And those Sabbaths, I believe, in Colossians 2, Paul is calling a shadow of things to come. So in Leviticus 3, you might have some headings there over the verses Divided. So verse 3, um, there is the day Sabbath, the seventh day Sabbath. Following that, in verses 4 through 8, you have the Passover and unleavened bread. These were a type of Sabbath. They were to be kept as well. They were to do no work on it, it says there at the end of verse 8. After that, beginning of verse 9, you had the feast of the first fruits. A lamb was to be slain. Uh, after that, beginning of verse 15, you have the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Booths, I think as well it's called. Then after that, beginning of verse 23, you have the Feast of Trumpets. And then in verse 26, you have the Day of Atonement. And then finally, uh, in verse 33, you have the Feast of Tabernacles. So you had these various feast days, which also were various types of Sabbaths. There's not only the seventh day Sabbath, which we said last week is now the first day Christian Sabbath, the Lord's Day. There, was these ver- there were these various other festivals God's people were to keep. Um, so in, in um, Leviticus 23, in verse 2, it says, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feasts of the Lord which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. These are my feasts, holy convocations, holy assemblies, where God's people would come together and keep these things. Now, let me just uh, share with you quickly what these feasts represented according to the New Testament. Okay, Scripture interprets Scripture. So there was the Passover and unleavened bread. These were to remind God's people of their deliverance from Egypt. They were brought out of captivity, slavery, from the house of bondage. They were freed by God through the Passover lamb, right? And there was the feast of unleavened bread. Well, what do those things signify? Well, in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, uh, Paul says, Christ is our Passover. Exodus is real history. It happened. But it had significance. They pointed forward to Christ who would come. So Christ himself is the Lamb of God whose blood shed enables us to live. The angel of death does not come to us. We have eternal life through the shed blood of Christ who is our Passover. Also, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8, that the feast of unleavened bread signifies putting away evil. And so... Uh, it was calling them to a life of purity. Remember, the reason they were not to have un- or leavened bread, that they were to have unleavened bread, was because it took time for the bread to become leavened. 
And it says in the Old Testament, make haste, make haste, get out of there, get out of there. What's the point? Uh, Egypt is not your home. That's a foreign land. What is their home? Canaan. So they're not to get comfortable in Egypt. They are to seek the promised land. Well, so it is with us today. And so Paul spiritualizes that. He makes a spiritual application, and that is we are to live lives of purity. This world is not our home. And so the Passover and the unleavened bread signify these things. There's the first fruits there in verse uh, 9, verses 9 through 14, and the Feast of Weeks in 15 through 22. Well, in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 23, Paul talks about the first fruits of the resurrection of Christ. Christ Jesus, his resurrection is the first fruit of our resurrection. What does he mean? If you want to see what your crop is going to look like just before the harvest, look at the first fruits from that crop. That's a guarantee. That's an indication of what the rest of the crop will yield, what it will look like. Will it be good or bad? Well, Paul points to the resurrection of Christ. He said he is the first fruit of the resurrection. Our resurrection will be like his resurrection bodily. We will be identified as who we were and are, that sort of thing. He talks about that in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, also, Paul talks about the first generation of believers after Pentecost being the first fruits of God's people this side of the cross, 2 Thessalonians 2.13. Then there's the Feast of Trumpets in verses 23 through 25. And so the Feast of Trumpets, in that feast they would sound the trumpet, which uh, would um, signify the Day of Atonement uh, to announce the year of Jubilee, when everyone's debt was canceled. And we can say a lot about the year of Jubilee. Christ referred to that in Luke 4. He is the fulfillment of that. He sets people free. He cancels our debts, all of that. But in the New Testament, when you think about a trumpet, can you think of trumpets anywhere in the writings of Paul? Well, that's in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. He talks about the trumpet will sound at the time of Christ's second coming. And it also indicates in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 8 the clear proclamation of the gospel. And then there's the Day of Atonement, uh, verses 26 through 32. That signifies or refers to all of the, the removal of all of Israel's sins. And in Hebrews 9 through 10, the writer there refers to that, the Day of Atonement. And he points out that in the Old Testament, those high priests, they were busy. They were shedding the blood of bulls and goats. Why? Because the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. But Jesus Christ, our great high priest, has sat down. Why? Because his work is finished. And so there's the Day of Atonement. In fact, scholars believe that Jesus Christ was actually crucified on the Day of Atonement when the Lamb uh, would be sacrificed. Then there's the Feast of Tabernacles in verses 33 through uh, 44. This was to remind people, the God's people, how the Lord had provided for them in the wilderness. And so in the New Testament, at this same feast, the Feast of Tabernacles in John 7, verses 37 and 38, Jesus stands up, remember, and he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
Jesus uttered that on the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, what does all that mean? Well, an old seminary professor of mine wrote a fascinating article. If you want it, I can give it to you. And he puts it this way, talking about these feasts. He says, well, in the case of each of the annual appointed times, it is clear that they were designed to point to the work of Christ. Christ is the Passover lamb who protects his people from the death angel. Christ is the pure unleavened bread who calls us to a life of purity. Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. And in his resurrection, we have the certain promise of our own. In the Feast of Weeks, Christ begins the harvest of the gospel with the day of Pentecost. Trumpets declare both the proclamation of the gospel and the second coming of Christ. The Day of Atonement declares the completed single sacrifice for sins accomplished by Christ, who now sits at the right hand of God. Finally, the Feast of Tabernacles declares Christ's ongoing provision for his people. True spiritual food and drink on the way of our wandering in the wilderness of this world. In these God-appointed times, there is a full-orbed presentation of the gospel. Isn't that fascinating? That's the lesson there in Leviticus 23. And back in Colossians 2, Paul says those feast days, they were shadows. The substance is Christ. He is the one who brings the blessings that these meals represented. So what's my point in bringing all of that to bear tonight? Because these were Sabbaths. And so when we talk about the, the Sabbath day, these are the things we think about on the Lord's day. Christ, how he has saved us, how he feeds us, and our future with him forever in eternity. Is there any wonder then when Jesus gave the call in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30, he said, come to me, all you who, what? Labor. And are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, we find rest in Christ alone. The day of rest is about that rest that we find in Christ. I always go back to Augustine. He said, our hearts are restless until we find rest in you, O Lord. Um, one pastor and theologian in Geneva, after Calvin, Turretin, he said there is a threefold Sabbath in the Bible. A temporal Sabbath, a spiritual Sabbath, and an eternal or heavenly Sabbath. The temporal Sabbath is the one day in seven Sabbath. Then he said there is the spiritual Sabbath. That's peace of conscience enjoyed by believers. Hebrews talks about that. Jesus offers that through the Gospels. Then there is that eternal Sabbath. He says that is the rest of being received into heaven, perfectly or completely freed, both from sin and from the labors and troubles, troubles of this life. And so there is a sense in which we anticipate that, right? I talked about that in the Old Testament. Perhaps you felt that in your day and time. We work six days, we rest one. Or we rest one and we work six days. We complete that cycle every week. Why? Because we are contemplating not only the work that Christ has completed, but the blessings that Christ has secured for us and are to come. 
right? That eternal Sabbath. Paul says this in Philippians 1.21. For me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. You know, I told you when COVID hit, I was telling certain people that, you know, they seemed worried. And some people looked at me like I had two heads. But as a Christian, that's our attitude. That's our thought. It should be. Why? Because we're going to enter that rest. Not that we desire it right now. I mean, maybe we do, but as long as we're here, like Paul says, to live is Christ. We're going to live for him. We're going to serve him. But that's why if you go look at an old cemetery, it says so-and-so on this day entered his or her eternal rest. And there's a reminder to us not to chuck something just because it's old. The old saints who have gone before us probably were a lot wiser than us, as we see with that. Um, but let us not forget them. Quick question. Since Christ is the fulfillment of these Sabbaths, and even the Sabbath, does it follow that Christians are no longer obligated to observe the Sabbath? Some conclude that. Some say that. So they talked about a renewed day or something like that. It's best to worship on Sunday. Well, I'm not going to rehash that. We talked about that last time. And there is one verse in Hebrews 4. I'm going to mention it quickly. I'm going to end here. Hebrews 4. Um, because Hebrews 3, the last portion of Hebrews 3, and Hebrews chapter 4, the word rest is sown or woven throughout. Right? And so there's this rest throughout the passage. It's mentioned at least six times in these verses. And that word is in the Greek, katapausis, katapausis, and it means rest, as you might imagine. But in Hebrews 4, 9, um, he says, there remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. Well, that word there in verse 9 is not that same Greek word. It is a different Greek word, and it's only used here in the New Testament. It's sabbatismos. Sounds like Shabbat, Sabbath. And what is he talking about? Well, this is a this is man, this is a hard passage of scripture to interpret. Let me tell you that. Uh, so we're not gonna seek to go through all that tonight, but let me just make a few remarks. The the writer here is contrasting and comparing God's work at creation and his subsequent subsequent rest with the work of Christ and his redemption and his rest. He entered into his rest on the first day of the week. Also, he's talking about the rest that Joshua accomplished in the Old Testament, leading God's people into the land, the promised land, with our present day, the one who is greater than Joshua, the Lord Jesus, which means Joshua, and how he led his people into rest and does lead his people into rest. Faith is the, the issue. And so he's urging those who haven't fully committed to Christ in verse 11, therefore let us be diligent to enter that rest. The rest that is offered in the gospel, the peace of conscience, resting in Christ, eternal life, all that, that's different than what he says there in verse 9. Therefore, there remains a sabbatismos, a Sabbath 
rest to the people of God. And so some say that refers to eternity, that which is to come. Uh, others say it is referring to the Lord's Day today that we keep one day in seven. And I say, yes, I think it refers to that one day in seven. But at the same time, on that one day in seven, we look forward to what is to come. So for our purposes tonight, we see that there remains a day set aside for rest in order that we may worship God and on that day contemplate the benefits of Christ Jesus. So we should conclude that Sunday is not merely about rest. It is. It is a day on which we cease from our normal worldly labor. It is that, but it is also a weekly rest for us to wander through this life to our heavenly Canaan, that is our heavenly Jerusalem, where Christ is, where we pause for refreshment in the Lord. We think about Christ and his benefits. And because of that, let us today cherish this day, let us guard this day. Let us keep the world out of it, as we are commended in Scripture to do. And let us seek His face and delight in it. And let us especially focus our thoughts on Christ and His great salvation. For the Lord is not only the Lord of creation, He is the Lord of our redemption. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for giving us a day of rest, the Lord's Day. We pray that you would help us to look forward to it every week, to honor it to the best of our ability, and to rejoice in it. We thank you for that rest that we have in Christ and the rest that is to come. We pray in his name. Amen.